I just like I I just need to say this to all men. If there's a camera here, I'll be looking at the camera. To all men, penises are the worst looking things in the universe. They're horrible. So they, they only work in context to a person. That's the yes. only way it works as a thing. Okay, stop it. Stop it. Welcome to Black in a Box March, and this is our International Women's Day special. We've got two fantastic guests, which I think we're going to introduce first. We have got a co-founder midwife in Spass Irving. How are you, Shabazz? I'm good, thank you. How are you guys? Yeah, you know, pretty good, pretty good. Feeling good energy in the camp and uh, excited about this episode, excited about having some new contributors, some new life. Some bits I'm going to sit and listen, other bits you're not going to be able to shut me up. So that's just the way it goes. <laughs> and also, at and writer, Yana Penrose. Hey. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm happy to be here. Does it feel good inside the box? It feels great inside the box. I've listened to you guys since, like, the, when you first got started. So I feel like I'm, like, meeting some celebs. Back in the creaky table days. Yeah. Yeah. A lot's been learned since that that <laughs> cognac fueled session in the dungeon. You guys have come a long way. <laughs> and with us, have our, have our regular cast members, Alana's with us. Yes, I am. Hello. Happy International Women's Day. Happy Women's History Month. Thank you. Thank you, Alana. You know, I'll pass that on. Um, <laughs> you can enjoy it too, Dan. <laughs> this always, is an inclusive absolutely. time. And uh, Angelo, how are you, my friend? How did John Boyega win a Golden Globe for, at best, the third best small axe? Uh, I'm on smoke, is my answer. That's that's how I am. <laughs> he, he immediately, and i that's why we love you. <laughs> it was the third best one. Can we keep it real? Can we keep it real? I know this isn't, this isn't even on the, the list to talk about, but come on. Are we, is this what we're doing? I love John Boyega. Like, I love John Boyega, but come on. Come it might on. even be the fourth best, more likes. It could be the fourth best. It could be the fourth best. Yeah, but he's the only actor that they know of, isn't it? So. Ah, get me upset, you know. Guy's just coming out choosing violence immediately. He doesn't know any other way. You know way. how I Didn't go. Get... <laughs> I was upset, bro. But I'm good, You're yeah. Right, Dom? Healthy. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm good too. Absolutely fine. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if we were going to get to you then, but uh, I'm glad we did. So we're going to get first straight into it for our first topic. We want to talk about, I guess, it's a, it's, it's a blend between sort of toxic masculinity and misogyny slash anti-women attitudes in professional spaces and how they manifest themselves in each of our different sort of professional surroundings. I guess I'll open this up by talking about the story of my first boss's birthday. When that happened, it was, it was my first job when I was in London. I think it was about 2012. And I'm not going to say which company it was, but I was working in the gambling industry, which is obviously a very masculine environment. And I remember came in n- nine o'clock and the boss came in at about 10 o'clock and he called all the, the guys up in the office and he said, guys, right, I want you to check your emails, make sure everything's done that needs to get done and I'll see you downstairs in half an hour. 
did it. Obviously, it was my first job. I didn't know what was going on. I was about, I think I was 22 at the time. Met downstairs in the lobby. He took all the blokes in the office to the Griffin Hotel, which is a pub, which is essentially a pound in a jar strip club. And it was just, it was just accepted. Apparently, he did this every birthday. And that was sort of my first experience of like hyper-masculine sort of misogynistic male first view of the workplace and it was it's it's interesting now that I, I, you see the changes that have happened from then to now and I go to, into other workplaces the last place I worked at we had a thing on Fridays where there was a drinks trolley that went round and they'd called it I remember joining and they said yeah yeah we call it gentlemen's club and I was like oh is it just for men they're like no they're women as well but you know that's just that's just what it's called and you know we've, we've come a long way but the attitudes is that entrenched that um, there's, there's still so far to go so I guess I think I will pass this across to Yana I guess as, as one of our new guests just to talk through uh, your experience in your particular workplace uh, how you've encountered these attitudes yeah in the creative industry it seems to be since time's up and everything like that everyone is much more aware and much more afraid of kind of male only rooms and gentlemen's clubs and things like that I think for me, I'm really aware of it just when I walk into an audition room or something and everyone behind those big long tables um, are men, you know, and they're having their little in-jokes and their little chats when you're about to do your audition piece or whatever and you feel quite isolated because there are just so many of them in, in one room and it's only little old you. In terms of toxic masculinity, I mean... <sighs> creative spaces everyone's got their own ideas everyone wants to put things in you know the pot and a lot of the time those conversations are male dominated but I think that's changing now which is um a positive thing I guess absolutely do you absolutely no no you go on you go on no I was just gonna ask do you feel like some of the attitudes that are changing amongst men in this industry post time's up do you feel like it's genuine or do you feel like it's kind of saving face? Uh, I think it's probably both. I think there's a lot of fear there for men that if they don't change, they're going to be called out on it. So yeah, from that perspective, I guess it's it's not genuine. But then I think there are a lot of men who just do it un- completely unconsciously and they just do it because that's just how we've always done things. And in, until they're challenged, they, they aren't aware of their behaviour. Um, so yeah, I'd say, I think it's a bit of both. Does it really matter if it's a bit of both though? I mean, obviously you would expect and want people to be honest about the way that they behave and the way that they act in a workplace. But if that normalises a more open way of dealing with genders, then for those who are coming into work for the first time, the ones that have just graduated, that just started in work, surely that sets good standards and expectations for them too. I think I think you need both. Um, I'm currently working in the construction industry, which is another very male-dominated industry. So I, you know, I think about this topic a lot. Um, but I think that maybe the danger in having people who are doing it disingenuously, who are just afraid of the consequences, but then maybe who turn around and go into that locker room and still maintain the same misogynistic views, you know, behind closed doors. I mean, I don't I don't see how that's going to help, because, again, like you said, yeah, and if you're in a position where you're the only girl in a room with a bunch of dudes and basically in a position of vulnerability, 
um, these guys who maybe have been presenting as more uh, gender neutral um, amongst their colleagues might try to try something, you know, when when you are in that vulnerable position. Yeah, definitely. I um, I've not long finished A Promised Land by Barack Obama. And he speaks in there about filling his, in his first administration, filling his staff like as as diversely as possible, but they were two thirds men. And the amount of women who had horrible experiences during that time and went to the Washington Post and kind of communicated that they've filled the room with, with women, but they're not listening to them. So you kind of think, well, I'm here as a woman and you want me here to make yourself feel good and you know, you want a virtual sig- virtue signal, but then what does that really mean? And even, you know, someone like Barack Obama has to admit that he had alienated women within his own administration. And, you know, what chances do like I have in a rehearsal room full of men? Um, so it's it's in every corner, I think. Yeah. Chabs, we just want to uh, sort of go into your, your experiences. In the industry that I'm in now, there, there aren't as, I'm not experiencing as many maybe um, examples of it happening because it is very female dominated in the sense that it's really rare to find um, like a male midwife um, and people seem to be uncomfortable with the concept of a man being a midwife and sort of attending the birth but not uncomfortable with the male obstetrician that will walk in and and be doing exactly the same thing, which I've never understood. I think a little bit, it's kind of like when you have the the boys coming in and it's like the group of um, doctors coming in to do their rounds and you'll say something and they'll say, oh no, that's rubbish or what a silly idea. And someone else will say it who's a man and just say it slightly differently. And be like, oh yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. That's the best plan of care. And you're just kind of like, I've just just said that. Um, Was I not clear? I don't know if you heard me. Um, but yeah, I think more, there are definitely more examples of that kind of stuff in my previous roles outside of healthcare. I won't name the place that I worked, but it's a very well-known chain restaurant. And just some of the stuff that went on there, it definitely was a bit more of a boys club. There was a lot of uh, really inappropriate stuff going on behind the scenes that was commonplace and expected, but it was also expected that people didn't talk about what was happening countless countless examples of sexual harassment a few examples going a bit more being a bit more morbid of like sexual assault and stuff like that that was just really just hushed up um and it was kind of like this thing between the boys you know the big boys who were in charge that they would kind of all sort of collude together to make sure that they would protect one another and it was this kind of commonplace thing to kind of any woman who was in a managerial role was any point if she was anything other than placid she was hysterical she's on her period like what's wrong with her she's a bitch she's this she's that which then made it in turn very difficult for us because I was a female manager um to feel like we could step forward with ideas to feel like we were would ever ever be listened to um it was a thing that we would kind of talk with each other about how we could almost trick them into thinking that we were good enough as if we were already not good enough it was just yeah there's just I could, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happened. I don't know how much I should say, really, but... That sounds like um, the textbook scenario of toxic masculinity. (laughs) It was pretty bad. It was really, really bad. Um, And just went on for a really long time and definitely was part of the reason that I left. And the way I left was really rubbish. So (laughs) I 
So yeah, I don't know. That's. It. I think you've given us a, a pretty good coverage of of sort of your experience there, and it's fascinating. Obviously, the last year to eighteen months, it's become popular to impose training courses and um, courses to make people aware of their own biases and their own privileges. And it's going to be interesting to see uh, just how much of that stuff's getting through. As you say, like if if people just have these courses imposed on them, it's going to be very difficult to change the underlying culture when the people have been like that for their entire careers. I ended up, I, I actually mentor a girl who's a young copywriter called Mickey and she got she got in touch with me through a former university friend of mine who said I've got this young girl she's a copywriter she likes the work that your agency create and she's aware that it's a super male dominated world and she says you know obviously you as someone who's you're male but you're not you don't look conventionally like you don't look like the rest of the people in the industry do can you help her so I thought yeah you know I'll see what I can do and I've just been trying to get as many female creators from work to talk to Mickey you know, and sort of give her tips and, and clues on uh, how to get on in the industry. And she's she currently has a campaign she's working on which where she noticed like there are no, there's basically no female mascots in ad campaigns. So that's when they say, when we say mascots, we see, you, you actually mean things like Churchill Dog or the M&M, the M&M Peanuts guys, like they're peanuts. Why do they both have to be men? And what they are they actually <laughs> it's emblematic of the fact that there are no female creatives making this work there are no there are hardly any there are actually more female mascots than there are female creative directors across the world and that you basically can't see any so she's got this campaign to sort of raise awareness for this this, this fact and she would tell me six in ten people on her course were actually women and just 18 months in that's down like I think there's only 20% are still working in it because it's too difficult because like you say things like them being um, because of the the environment of, of the workplace even at creative companies it's just not it's it's not created to be for women to be successful in it and it's that just just talking to Mickey and sort of trying to help her along has made me so much more aware of just the way I behave and 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 the way briefs come in and the way we handle jobs and the way I work with other people. So it's uh, it's definitely a pertinent time for me to be having these conversations with other people. I think as well, talking about culture and environment, unfortunately that goes beyond the hours of nine to five. If I think back to when I started at Deloitte, I think currently 21% of the partners there are women. So if you go with the other 79%, and I think back to some of the activities that we had after work, on the whole, they were really inclusive and things that all genders can enjoy. But then I think back to the times that you can really connect and start to bond with your seniors. And it was typically Tuesdays, Wednesdays. There's a pub right next to the office and myself, colleagues, and a few of the partners would go to watch Champions League after work. And that's where you start to see these relationships building. And if you imagine you've got 79% of the partners in the company, and that's obviously not to say that all male partners love football and all female partners don't, but straight away you've got a new cohort of junior men rising through the ranks who've developed a personal relationship with these partners that goes way beyond just being in the office. And you started to see actually people that had no interest in the football just coming down because it was quite clear that some people were getting FaceTime, um, in inverted commas, 
with certain partners that others weren't um and as you might imagine it is quite a bit of a rat race environment at times in a company like that and it makes a difference it really does because I can recall after I'd been at the company for a couple of years and I'd found myself in the pub after work a few times with a group which included one particularly high profile partner and not long after that we had a company-wide event and as part of this event people get put randomly into these groups um there's a certain discussion and then somebody has to present back and i remember in every other group it was someone senior so a senior manager direct director or partner that would that would speak back to the wider group in ours i just so happened to get put in a group with this partner who had been out at the pub with a few times and when we were deciding who was going to speak it wasn't a group decision he said don you're speaking at the time i was like what's what's this dickhead doing <laughs> why, why is he doing this to me in front of everyone but then i'm realizing as i'm growing more confident as i'm understanding politics and i'm understanding the way things work better that that was his way of boosting my profile in the company because now all of a sudden when you've got a room of senior people speaking and then i'm speaking all of a sudden people are like who's this guy and had I not had that um, experience, had I not been drinking, chatting informally down at the pub with him, that wouldn't happen. It certainly wouldn't have happened. So these are the little things that really do make a difference. Um, and that's where a huge part of the issue is. Because if you don't start to more stringently enforce numbers so that you have a more equitable representation across the workspace, across the industry, then you're going to have these situations where between nine and five, everything is fair everything is equal, everyone is being treated exactly the same way. But when you leave the office and go to the pub, or you go to a strip club in, in Dan's example, that's unfortunately where these relationships in certain industries seem to be made. You don't necessarily get promoted purely on merit. And I think that's particularly important. I'm just, I'm always in my head thinking of the devil's advocate, and they would say, well, do you know, that's part of playing the game, and you know, we have to do this. But I think it becomes particularly important when you start going for promotions and all of the subjective reasons why somebody does or doesn't get a job start getting thrown around and you know I just feel like I can get on with this person a bit better or you know they're just they're just a bit friendlier in terms like this and it's like so it doesn't matter if kind of Bjarna or Shabazz or Alana is like oh you yeah no I'm quite interested in football too it's like well I just don't feel comfortable around them and you start getting into these subjective things which we know happen when it comes to hiring and there's definitely uh, a race element to that as as well, um, and um, it's I've, I've been having this uh, conversation for the project that I'm currently working on, and looking at um, one of the things that the current project that I'm working on looks at how um, women uphold um, patriarchy and sexism as well. And what's interesting is with this character that we've been looking at this woman who does the the most to uphold it in in the role that she has she's like just as big a victim of it as well and and it's this idea that kind of i think you know we kind of think of uh you know women that kind of uh, that do these kind of things that kind of will 
you know, be married to somebody that's an a-hole or kind of spout some nonsense that their partner kind of says and is upholding it. But it's like, well, what's the flip side of that? Because, you know, as, as it says in The Wire, the game is rigged, you know, so you, you have to engage in patriarchy to get ahead. You know, like, um, I have worked in places where the manager has been pretty open in saying that he will not promote women of childbearing age because he doesn't want to pay two wages when they start having babies and going off. And that was something that was, and that's, that's within the last 10 years. That's within the last 10 years. I can see, I can see the, the women in the conversation are just looking like, what? That, that's, a, that's a true known story that happened in a place that I worked at before. So before we get into this discussion of, oh, well, you know, maybe it's just that guys are a bit more friendly or like maybe that, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to work with people that you get on with. Like there's the overt as well as the covert happening. Yeah, I definitely, I think um, <laughs> it's funny because as you're talking, I'm just thinking like, what are the ways in which I have and probably continue to do so um, participate in patriarchy myself or sort of heighten, you know, air, qu air quotes, masculine behaviors within myself to sort of fit in with the boys, which I always kind of have done naturally. I mean, God damn it, I'm on a podcast with four other dudes, but um, I definitely know that, like, I don't feel like I have experienced maybe some of the harsher uh, realities of toxic masculinity, but that is probably because I've always made an effort to, like, have that banter with the guys you know, I, I do go to the pub after and watch football and like I've made the effort to learn about it. And on the one hand, that is naturally how I am. But on the other hand, I've probably downplayed some aspects of my femininity to be like, you know, the guy's girl or one of the guys. And I do think it has led to advantages and progression in my careers where I've seen other women within the same companies not succeeding as much and you know it's all and the other thing is too it's all I always get this comment of from some of the guys you know like you have such a good sense of humor um or like I like you like you're the cool girl in the office because you have the good sense of humor which really means like I can hear you say some horrendous shit <laughs> and like not completely go off on it or at least you know I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe not get emotional about it. Again, air quotes emotional, but... Just to play devil's advocate on that, um, can I... At what point do we kind of go, though, that, you know, there is an interpersonal element? At what point do we kind of say that there is a... We can't just hide behind it's a woman. Maybe there are just moody, miserable people. And I, again, I am playing devil's advocate. This is not of you, I believe. I'm kind of saying that is a counterpoint that people might use. How do we know, meaning like, how do we know whether somebody is, a woman is just being sort of like sensitive or problematic versus, I don't know. I was, I don't know. I guess it comes back to like the intent of people or whether you feel like you're being respected. Like everybody has their own boundaries, the things that they like and they don't like in the workplace. And I think if you're a woman and you set certain boundaries, if they're being respected, then, and you're still kind of causing a fuss, maybe that's an issue. But if they're not being respected, 
I think it's fair to say that you're not being emotional. It doesn't matter what the boundaries are. If you've set them for yourself, if that's, you know, your personal line and you've communicated that clearly, and if it's consistently being crossed, then that is inappropriate. Sorry, Jan, I feel, I feel like I may have cut you off earlier. You, going you did, I'm, but it's okay. <laughs> on this episode of all episodes, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> Just going back to your point, Alana, about kind of fitting in with the lads or, you know, in a kind of work environment. In my industry, it's kind of the the opposite. Like, I want to kind of play the patriarchy when I walk into an audition room, not so much with writing, but definitely with acting, of playing into the ways that guys can be attracted to me and notice how I am different because of my femininity. So it's so interesting to hear the opposite because really all of the parts that, you know, particularly for someone my age is going up for kind of are the parts that you want people to fancy in a way, which isn't always good to be like, you know, objectified constantly. But I definitely play into the hands of the patriarchy. (laughs) But it pays my bills, do you know what I mean? So I think there are times that we've all been guilty of that though. Like how many times have you not wanting to put makeup on but you put makeup on because you know that you get a better reaction from the men that are around you for whatever reason that you need them to have it um definitely have noticed in previous jobs the girls who made more of an effort with their hair and makeup or you know wore the tighter uniform whatever would get preferential treatment from um male managers and other male staff if they needed help for anything than the girls who came in and just beautiful as they are you know, yeah. come in to do their job, um, don't need to be doled up. They were the tough girls, they were more manly girls, they didn't need as much help, things like they wouldn't get as much sympathy or whatever if they were upset, that kind of stuff. I think we've all been guilty of it, I don't know. Is there an age component to that? Because I've been in workplaces where for younger men and women there does seem to be a pressure to look a certain way. But it's almost like with 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 all genders, you reach a certain age, and I like to call it the fuck it stage, where it's like, oh, these people can just turn up wearing whatever they want. Like, I, I I've I've worked in places where it's like, oh, so we can just turn up in like a grass skirt and flip flops on a Tuesday in February. That's 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 what we're saying now. Um, and similarly, you see the guys that it's like, oh, we. We're just going to wear a polo top with jogging bombs in the classroom. That's 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 what we do in that. I'm wondering, is that an age thing or do you think it is specifically gendered? I do think age is an issue. I think that the younger guys and gals will try harder um, to do it and it'd be, I think, maybe feel more obliged to do that. This kind of thing of not wanting to seem old, not wanting to seem not as relevant, not as fresh or whatever, down with the kids, whatever. Um, definitely feel like that is there. And I also feel like it depends on, I think it depends on the individual. I think it depends on how that person is on their first day. If I turn yeah. up on my first day without makeup, then if you if I wear makeup to work, then that's a treat. Whereas if you, I feel like if you turn up on your first day and you're dolled up to the nines, there's kind of this expectation of yeah. maybe, you know, oh my God, everyone really liked me. Was it because... I was wearing makeup was it because I did my hair nice and it's kind of this thing that you then go well maybe if I keep doing that then that will be fine I'll get better treatment or whatever and I think that's then reinforced specifically reinforced when you do that one day where you don't go to work with makeup on and the questions are are you okay you see are you, <laughs> you, look, tired. you look really really <laughs> tired today <laughs> 
<laughs> you look really tired today. Are you okay? Are you unwell? Do you need something? Like, no, I've just not put any makeup on today. This is what I actually look like. Oh, okay. And then it's, are you treated differently after then? Is it paranoia? Who knows? But yeah. Surprise, when you're saying that, that the the comments that you get, and especially as a as a, a midwifery, I can't. Um, is that other women that are checking you like that? That are kind of yes, abs- absolutely. I think that um, there is a large. I think people really just assume that it's a thing where it's just like men are doing this and women are not complicit in it at all. They don't get involved, but actually, women are almost worse than men in a lot of times because they are brave enough to say a lot of stuff that men would never dare say to a woman for fear of whatever um and it's this thing that then becomes this kind of like bitchy phenomenon where it's do you join the people who are berating these people for being themselves for not wearing makeup for i don't know not going on that date for not doing something stupid whatever or do you try and stand up for yourself and rip yourself apart from that but then you then make yourself a target and it's kind of this thing this balance I think people are always trying to 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 master and you can really just see the people who just fall off straight away and go do you know what it's just easier for me to pick on someone than to be picked on it's the like I say it's the sort of workplace pick me culture yeah absolutely and then obviously in sort of experiences that I have seen of that kind of culture in a group of women um I've definitely seen it um as a culture in midwifery that you will have the cliques of of midwives who are seen as um a bit more abrasive um sometimes just downright rude you know people you don't want to work with and because they stick together and they are the way they are even though they are such a small minority a lot of the time they do kind of rule the roost um and it's their opinion that you're vying for it's if you're in that group if you're in that clique then you are more likely to be suggested for a new role suggested for a pay rise all that that kind of stuff and everybody else is kind of just left with whatever is left over just send it quickly to dom i thought i saw his hand in the air briefly yeah yeah i was just gonna say i think a lot of it unfortunately comes down to confidence and a sense of, of belonging or a lack thereof because if I think back to when, when I first started in the industry I'm working in now, my first probably two, three years, I was going in dressed like I was in Mad Men or something, like trying to look as sharp as possible every single day because it was kind of, it, it was a couple of things. Firstly, because I wasn't sure still to that point that I belonged there because not many other people looked like me. And then secondly, it was a case of, I've seen a few of the partners, they dress in a certain way, so I guess if I want to be a partner, I need to dress this way. Double-breasted. <laughs> not, double not quite double-breasted, but the odd pocket square and that. But it was one of those where, after a couple of years, I got to the position where it was like, you know what, I know that I'm better than the vast majority of my cohort. I'm not going to worry about that side of things too much. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, and I'd assume a lot of, a lot of women based on what I'm hearing here, if you have got a situation where the workspace is so masculine male dominated and the image of successful women is one that is more made up for instance then it is going to be harder to move away from that because i didn't have obviously i had the race and the and the working class background as a thing going against myself but once i saw that i can be pally with a partner because we like football i started to worry a little bit less i kind of started to feel like okay actually I do belong here because he's just a bloke like I am. But the important point there is that because he's just a bloke like I am. If you take that away from it, all of a sudden you've got the situation where it's 
I actually do need to make an effort beyond just doing my job because, and we've obviously just explained the, the, the reasons for that. So I think we do obviously as men have that benefit of, I think the reins can be released for us a little bit sooner, probably a lot sooner because of a lot of these issues that we've just discussed there. Yeah, and I think that to your point, Dom, it's not just about women, it's also about being women of color and black women in particular, being in a space uh, that is predominantly male and white this idea of, you know, what professional, professionalism looks like, there's even more pressure, I think, on us. Uh, I know that for many years, I mean, really up until before lockdown, I would straighten my hair all the time just because like it would be smoother and that would look more quote unquote professional. Um, and then in addition to the putting on the makeup and this and that, and I, <laughs> I'm sure colorism plays into this. 100% as well, even when you are a black woman. Um, it's definitely not just about the age. It is certainly, uh, it is certainly about gender, I feel. And, you know, the intersectionality of race and gender, for sure. Agreed. For our next segment, obviously we've got Shabazz on the podcast. You've heard her voice before, speaking in her professional capacity, being interviewed by Angelo. Did you enjoy it? Who doesn't love talking to their sister for a couple of hours about the fuckeries that happen at university? <laughs> you can go back and check that out after this pod. I'd like to talk about medical racism that women go through. And for, for as a layperson, I'd like to ask, first of all, is it something which is evident in a sort of regular does it make itself evident in its sort of regular week at work? Is it something which is continually cropping up or is it sort of, are there particularly egregious uh, examples which kind of, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll rear their heads every once in a while? Um, I think at my current place of work, which is very multicultural, it's very diverse, I think it would be maybe a much rarer occurrence, but when it would come up, it would be something that would be quite... Um, offensive um, but in relation to when I was training it was something that was commonplace so things that would be considered really awful were probably downplayed because they were just happening all of the time um, it definitely was a thing that was witnessed by a lot of people um, and depending on their viewpoint on um, everything really but mostly how they perceived racism would be dependent on how they would react to it um, it definitely was a thing of if you spoke up about that kind of stuff you were just trying to cause trouble which then fed into the culture of seeing wrong things happening and not wanting to report them at all uh, which then just feeds into them just continuing to happen all on the time it's this very toxic circle that keeps going and going i've definitely seen like stereotypical views that uh, certain white practitioners have had and how they've affected how they have responded to uh, specifically black women in their care. Um, I have an example of a woman who was just, she was just really being sick, um, wasn't being able to keep anything down, so it's hyperemesis. Um, and she was in the hospital um, for fluids and trying to sort of, you know, get her back to eating, control her sickness. Um, but because she was a woman who carried her weight very well, but was a bigger woman the comments weren't about um her not eating the comments weren't about her care the comments were you know she's obviously been eating something because look at the size of her 
her bum, <laughs> her thighs, that kind of stuff. Um, and it wasn't a, a case, a fact-finding mission for them. They didn't want to go and, and discover why she, you know, was she'd stopped being sick. Why are you not eating? They didn't want to do that. They just kind of had already made up their mind that she was just this, you know, stereotypical big black woman uh, who must be eating, you know, fried chicken all the time um, and just didn't didn't give her any care. And actually on just having a simple conversation with her, it was she really just didn't like the hospital food and she was waiting for her family to bring some food for her to eat. And that was a simple thing that that, that could have been sorted this, the very second that, she, you know, she arrived. But because of these views that these practitioners had they just completely sort of pushed her to the side they weren't they just weren't invested in her care it was just a bit of gossip and a bit of fun for them and that was really that was really saddening to see in these instances do you feel like um color in terms of you know shades of black and brown play a factor or even someone's name or surname will play a factor um, yeah, I think that, um, and these are obviously just, again, my personal experiences, but I'm a dark-skinned black woman. I wasn't treated very well there. There were other black women who were there who were not treated well, but they were lighter skinned than me, so they didn't seem to get it as bad. Um, and that was something that they would note to themselves as well. Um, but there were so few of us. That sounds awful. Um <laughs> It just it just it was a very whitewashed um um area but I think that um in terms of patient care as well I do think it plays a factor uh it's really interesting that you that you uh use names as an example any name that doesn't look like a very common kind of you know Barry John uh you know Mark boring name Susan Sally's all these kind of like very English names or whatever um, anything like that is is a point of humour. Um, my name is Shabazz. It's very easy to say. It's spelt phonetically, which is how this language is spoken. Um, and yet people <laughs> took great pleasure in... Um, people took great pleasure in coming up with what they would see as really funny um, ways to say my name or just not bothering to say my name at all, saying that they would, um, you know, didn't understand how to say it, mispronouncing my name. Um, I have been called Shiraz for a very long time in one place of work, which is a wine in case anybody didn't know what Shiraz was. Um, I've corrected people on my name and it's kind of like a joke of going on, but you know, we're talking to you kind of thing. It's like, no, but, but my name is it's on a badge here like it's it's right, written right, here exactly. my name is Shabazz um I do feel like um the nickname that I have which is Shabs is not a name that I chose for myself at all um it's actually a name that was given to me by my uh white friends at school because they wanted to have a nickname that was just a bit easier a bit more fun to say than Shabazz and it stuck <laughs> Um, and I feel like when I go into places, I introduce myself as Shabs because it is easier to say. And then I feel like I take away the opportunity to make fun of my name. That obviously comes with its own issues. <laughs> I've definitely introduced myself as Shabs on a phone before. And people have then met me in real life and they've gone, oh, I didn't expect you to look like that. That's not what I expected you to look like, which is a bit weird. <laughs> I mean, preach like my name's Ali, which is not actually my name. Uh, it's Alana with an H, but for some reason that H just really fucks people up. 
I don't know why, but it's literally like an Irish name. Not difficult to pronounce. Sometimes I even feel like when they see that you're black and then they see your name and if there's anything peculiar, they'll just make it more difficult. <laughs> it's fascinating listening to you there, Shabazz. <sighs> because, uh, yeah, I've, I've got a bit of a, a, a bit of a personal story about um, my own experience of sort of, uh, of medical racism. And, well, it, I mean, it's the second part of a two-part story, this one pertaining to uh, my auntie. So my auntie was uh, disabled because she'd had a stroke in 1992, I think. So she was disabled all down one hand, one side of her body. And she was sort of fighting cancer um, for a good five or six years. And I remember she went into hospital one year, uh, one Christmas. And this, this is when they first discovered it. And it was sort of all over her body. She was complaining of feeling ill. And they couldn't sort of pinpoint what it was. And they got to it quite late and it was literally at the point where they were like well if she is to sort of lose consciousness or go into a coma we don't want to resuscitate her because she's been through quite a lot anyway in her life and there were times when she was complaining about pain and there seems to be this this weird misconception about black women's threshold for pain where they're simply not believed and bearing in mind you've got a woman here who's been who's he's he's had a stroke and she's been in a wheelchair for twenty years and she's raised five kids and been through all that. Uh, she's telling you she's in pain. I think it's 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 not it's not a stretch to say that, you know, she might be telling the truth. And the reticent to the reticence to, to sort of treat those concerns seriously was it was nearly really costly. Luckily, um she managed to get sort of her own sort of doctor and a second opinion and bear in mind she used to be a nurse herself for 20 years so she knows she's she's, she's well equipped in what she's talking about she's got the knowledge um she managed to get her own doctor and she, she managed to get helped out in the end and she she i think she lived in there like five five or six years but it to, just to get sort of a real that was that was a real eye-opener for me um in terms of like even within sort of the medical profession in a place of care like a hospital um these preconceptions, uh, followers, followers, you know, behind every door. And I say this is the second part of a two-part story, and that's because in 1991, um, my uncle went into hospital and he had like a he's gone with a knife, and it was like I think it's pretty routine procedure, and he'd had some adverse reaction to some of the drugs they'd given him, and he went, you know, he's, he's a man from Malawi. He went, he was starting to go blue. And the doctor, the, my my auntie was like, he needs treating. Like, there's something not right here. There's something not right here. And again, the doctors didn't believe them, and he died, because they didn't react quickly enough when something was clearly going wrong. So, it's, I mean, that's it's 30 years ago now, but it's it's kind of concerning to see that some of these sort of views and and the the way we respond to the concerns of of entire communities is, is still sort of is still having an effect on people's sort of life chances now uh, Jana? Can I please ask a question about childbirth because I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that we've all seen the statistics about black women being four times more likely than white women to die um, during pregnancy or during childbirth and just after having a child I think it's like 40 per 100 thousand for black women but 16 per 100,000 for mixed race women 
and I'm mixed race, but I have a lot of black friends who, you know, we're all coming to the age now that we're starting to think about having children. And some of them have communicated fears about going into hospital and having a baby and not being believed when they're in a lot of pain. And I never really know what to say to them, kind of what advice or what help can I give a, a friend who is afraid of, you know, giving birth because she's black? I think that's a really good question. The honest answer is I don't know what I could possibly say to make anybody feel comfortable about that. And that's not to say that it's really scary and really horrible for every person all of the time, but it's so varied in the care um, that I could turn around and say, you know, at hospital A, it's really great. So if you go to hospital A, you'll be great. Um, but hospital B, you'll probably, you know, this might happen or that might happen. And the issue really is, is that we have these pockets where this stuff isn't as prevalent. Um, I think the only thing that you can do to try and make yourself feel better about it and know that you're doing everything that you can is, as horrible as it sounds, is if you're anxious about that kind of stuff, you just have to really stick up for yourself. And I know that's a really hard thing to do when you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling like you're not being listened to but there is so much information out there now for everybody. Every like, someone has access in some way to extra information, to an internet, to a phone, to a phone to call a friend, um, and ask these questions. Um, but if there are things that you don't understand <clears throat> with your care, you need to speak up there and then. Um, be extra vigilant with how they speak about you in your notes. Um, you know, if you've had a conversation and you read through your notes again and you think that's not right bring that to the attention because these are official records and I'm not saying that you know everything goes wrong all of the time because a lot of the time it doesn't but if it does those official records are going to be the receipts that you need to make sure that you can argue your point that you know you weren't given adequate care um and more than anything is that the reason that people need to be more educated or try to be more educated about this stuff is because if you're not then you don't know what you are fighting for and if you don't know what you're fighting for you don't know how to fight for it then you don't really even know that you are potentially getting care that's not great or that you aren't even realizing that you're not being listened to or taken seriously or anything like that so I think the biggest thing that anybody can do is just read into every single thing that they are talking to about ask those questions and don't allow them to bully you with talk that you know you are being difficult um don't be fearful that by you sticking up yourself and being difficult um that the care that you're going to receive is worse because everyone has to be treated the same and you know what's good for you and regardless of whether you know the procedures that you need to be going to have or how they're done you do know how an, a, a normal human being treats another normal person, you know. So if you feel like something's wrong, just speak up. You are in charge of your care. Um, any advice we give is is advice. We can give recommendations, but at the end of the day, it's your body and it's your choice. And it's, you know, as long as we can say that we've given you all the information to make that informed choice, and that's a really important thing is informed choice, Um then it's just documented and you move on. There are always going to be people that you encounter in, I think, any um, industry, but particularly in healthcare, that you don't feel that you gel with or are just never going to change that opinion of you or, you know, will just sit there and kind of try and make you out to be a bit of a drama queen or whatever. There are always going to be those kind of people that you come across. Um, 
but the one thing that I really want to say as someone who is not that person is to know that it is just maybe that one person is such a small minority of them but because the stories that come out are so harrowing they're the stories that take the limelight a lot and I think what is also lost is that there are absolutely fantastic midwives out there or just healthcare professionals in general who are really passionate about their job really passionate about their care for women really want their women to be informed and educated and empowered to to take real um leadership in their care and and get the births and stuff that they want they are out there um it's just unfortunate that it's commonplace that the horrible sad stories normally make the most noise and this is one thing when we talk about racism and when we think about the different topics that we've covered whilst we've been doing this podcast this is always one that sits so poorly with me because when someone's giving birth it's it's supposed to be one of the most special days of their life and i think if you're working in an an industry in a profession where your job is to deliver that baby as safely and for the mother as possible like how can you have any kind of contempt for the people that you are working with it it just it fills me with rage when i think about it one of my friends um, she gave birth last november um, and she's not black but she's indigenous peruvian and she is about five foot and she could tump me up she's one of the hardest women that i know she's got such a big heart as well and when she was telling me the story about the treatment that she went through and how she was ignored for six seven plus hours and going through excruciating pain in the run-up to giving birth to her first child and it was not even coincidentally a black woman a black midwife who ended up coming onto the ward and seeing the amount of pain she was in and completely going against the advice that had been given by these two white midwives for the rest of the time that she was in the hospital. And she says this woman saved her life. And you hear too many stories like that, and it just gets me so mad because it's like these women are in such a vulnerable place, and they're about to bring a child into this earth. Just do what you can to make that passage as easy as possible. I I just, I don't understand where the humanity of it, the humanity of it, how can you ignore that side of things when these people are so vulnerable it just it just makes me so mad to think about um hearing that really makes me really cross it's definitely things i have witnessed and i have seen um and that i think that feeds into this kind of phenomenon from these women who have been complaining for a long time that they're in pain or that they need something like please listen to me that when someone does come along and does that little act of kindness of you know your friend had to wait all of those hours and that midwife basically came in and just had like managed to pat in which is just you know the bare minimum really um it kind of then also creates this kind of thing of being so grateful that you then don't want to make up any more fuss because this person has come and they've done that one thing for you that you just needed and you had to wait so long for and they're this wonderful person but now you don't want to you know put them out and you don't want to tell things to them which will affect your care as well I think, Shabazz, I can't believe I'm about to do this. I'm about to take my life into my own hands and disagree with my sister. Um, Because you kind of seem to uh, suggest that, you know, that, you know, there's a lot of good going on and it's not all midwives. Sounding real cop-like. No, no. Couple couple (laughs) bad apples. Using the old uh, bad apples defence there. No, I am not. No, I am not. What I am trying to say is if you encounter someone who you believe is giving you horrendous care... What I'm wanting you to listen to is that there are midwives out there that will listen to you. So that's why it's important that you 
as much as you can push aside the anxiety and keep speaking up and keep fighting out because someone will listen to you and if it gets to a stage where you have been like fighting for a long time and and someone who really is passionate about wanting you to have the best care hears about that it's not just going to be that they're going to rectify that person's um, mistakes they're also going to go forward and make sure that you get some kind of justice for that what reassurances can we give let's take you up to someone who's a bit more senior let's get these plans of care written down let's have them all printed let's brief everybody so they know that you're coming in this is happening If, if it has to get to that stage it has to get to that stage in no way was I trying to be like not all midwives. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag not all midwives. Think about how I started this podcast. I've just been on smoke from the from the beginning. And this but and I think the no, the actual point I was gonna make is that um the problem is is that when you're in hospital care, it only takes one bad person to ruin the entire experience. I remember when I was in hospital, I was in hospital a few years ago in in quite bad shape and I did this thing where I kind of wrote down the name of everybody that kind of gave me care, whether it was like a porter or an orderly, um, like the poor woman that came and weighed me every day and was like, how are you losing a kilo a day? But actually there was one nurse who was quite vindictive and kind of really made me quite sick through negligence. And I remember my, my, my partner at the time wanted to kind of go down the kind of hospital complaints procedure and just be like, this is unacceptable. But my thing was, I showed her this pad. I was like, I have been seen to by 107 people. Because I was there for quite a few weeks. I've been seen to by 107 people. 106 out of 107 have given me literally excellent care. Not just good, but excellent care. In what other profession are you seeing 106 out of 107? Now, I'm not saying that's the case with midwifery. That Those numbers, 40 out of 100,000 to compared to 16 out of 100,000. That's, But actually, when you do that as a percentage, I know it sounds awful, I know, and, this is, and I'm not saying it's acceptable. They're still really, really small numbers. They're unacceptably high because, you know, if 16 planes out of 100,000 were dropping out of the sky, we wouldn't be flying. But I do still think there is something to be said for the fact that kind of... Well, I do understand what you were saying, Shabazz. I was, I was, I'm just on smoke. And and the only other thing I'd say is to all the um, women of colour that are listening, if you do experience difficulties and are forced to kind of, you know, tell your medical team what's going on with your own body, that gives you something in common with Beyonce and Serena Williams. Like Serena Williams had to call her own pulmonary embolism to stop herself from dying in childbirth, which is just the most wild thing I've ever heard in my life. In the middle of pregnancy to be like, yo, this feels pulmonary embolism-ish. Uh, can you check that out? And the doctor's like, okay. And then, and then it was. So yeah, stand up for yourselves. Hopefully, most of us aren't going to be in hospital that many times in our lives. If we're in hospital such a small handful of times and say three of those five times, we remember it mostly because of the bad treatment that we got and the neglect that we received, then that is going to be a piece of trauma which is genetically passed down to our descendants. It's going to happen. We're not going to trust people that are supposed to be there to help us. Dom, you literally just touched on what I was thinking because I was thinking about how in the States um, there is this whole thing about how a lot of African-Americans are very resistant to the idea of getting the vaccine for COVID. And I think for, um, you know, some of my friends here in 
the UK, um, they're seen as idiotic, but I had to explain to multiple people, you don't understand, like black people would go into the doctors and leave sterilized, like just going in for a routine checkup. So it's generations and generations of being just mutilated at the hands of people who are supposed to be saving you and protecting your life um, because of racism and black women, especially for gynecological issues um, and anything having to do with pregnancy. And it's, it's good to hear though, Shabazz, that, I mean, I do think hopefully the medical profession, profession has improved significantly here and in the US but that's real inherited trauma. So I think that women have a black women have a right to be um, wary when they go in to see the doctor. And to your point, I think asking as many questions and standing up for yourself and believing yourself when you experience pain or issues is so important. Shabazz, when you were when you were learning, do they teach you how to spot certain symptoms on different shades of skin? Because I know this is a very recent thing. Um, so at my place of study, um, I think the only things that were representative of a different skin tone to white, where we had a couple of the babies that we were using were like chocolate, chocolate brown. And then we had, um, when we were learning how to do uh, vaginal exams, they had silicone models to use and the skin tone for the caucasian one was perfect but for i'm assuming what was meant to be like an asian skin tone um and for what was meant to be the black skin tone it was just completely inaccurate i think the asian skin tone was almost gray with like a hint of like like a tint of yellow and it looked moldy and the brown one was more of like a like a very dark gray color and I was just like, oh, okay, cool. I don't really remember seeing anything else. Um, I never saw any pictures. I never saw any sort of um, information videos or anything like that that had any other colours really than um, white skin. I think obviously there were like bits and films and stuff that we saw that had actors in where we would have like black women, black pregnant women as actors or whatever. Um, but never anything that was this is what this symptom looks like on black skin. This is what this symptom would look like potentially on um, Asian skin. Um, this is what, you know, these symptoms look like, or this is how this would present in this kind of person from this culture or anything like that. Um, and really interestingly, when I started at my new job, um, we had an induction week and we had a suturing day. Um, so they teach us the guidelines of how, you know, we suture women um, within the trust. And I saw for the first time, uh, educational video on suturing that um featured a black woman and i feel it, was, it feels kind of silly to say i feel like i became almost emotional because it was very overwhelming for me to see that because i had never seen that before um and it was so informative and it made sense for a lot of things that i don't think i would have ever really put together in my mind properly to practice had i not seen it there with my own eyes um and it was just, it was, it was massive. It was massive for me. And I think obviously it's a thing that I think we all know representation really matters, but that point and how I felt in that moment was like, this is why representation matters because yeah, it just, I think it really informed my practice. Um, I think there was a black doctor that had been putting together um, yeah. like pictures and, and putting together like a little book of how to recognize symptoms on, on other races. And I think that's brilliant work, brilliant work. 
he's like a junior doctor as well like young junior doctor this year just no last year sorry keep forgetting in 2021 just taking it into his own hands i just can't believe that we we've got to this point you know that a a junior doctor is having to do that for the entire (laughs) medical profession but you know props to him it's amazing I was, I was just going to say as well, right, it's one thing, it's one thing to deal with racism within the medical profession, but then when you have this genuine lack of education as well, there will 100% be certain symptoms that are missed because none of this work until, I hope I'm not butchering this, Malone McQuende last year put together his book. How the hell are people going to know unless they've treated a black person with that exact same illness with the same symptoms previously? There needs to be more work put in to put that right. Um, I think as well, um, just touching on symptoms, is that um, whilst there are things that I think people think are stereotypically affecting certain cultures, certain races, um, and then maybe that's just ignored, you've also got the other side of the fence. So with endometriosis, endometriosis has commonly been known as the white woman's disease, which means that when you have black women who have um, symptoms of endometriosis, it's misdiagnosed and misdiagnosed and misdiagnosed because it's not a thing that black women would get. And what happens then is you have women who are in this health system who are having completely unnecessary interventions on their body. Some of them are really radical as well. Um, and, And it's leading to a whole host of other symptoms that are really affecting their quality of life before years later, realizing that it's the thing that they said do you think it could be this in the first place and they've just been ignored um so yeah i think that's the other side of it which is also just i think equally as dangerous i was was just gonna say it's we were touching on the need to have almost a guide for 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 black people and black skin and what these, these illnesses look like and what the symptoms look like but just actually as we were talking about it i was thinking with a lot of the nurses from previous generations having practiced elsewhere, it's weird that those their knowledge is just lost. Once the generation retired that were, that were trained elsewhere, if they were trained in the Caribbean, if they were trained in Africa, no one's captured that knowledge. No one's asked them anything. And now, like you're saying, you've got this young lad who you know, is starting to, it's almost having to start fresh. And it's incredible that you'd have this resource uh, previously for generations and then you just let it just just fall into ruin effectively and the knowledge is lost to everyone i'm not even surprised though that doesn't surprise me and it's such a shame it's such a shame but they obviously weren't listened to and i think we know why that's the worst thing about racism it, it kind of beats the hope out of you so when you hear these kind of things you're like well duh obviously <laughs> okay so thanks for that little interrogation session shabazz um Really appreciated it. I'm sure everyone else did as well. So, COVID, we've we've come full circle now. We've had a year of COVID and, you know, people respond to it in different ways. And I think one of the the real sort of unseen at the time um, knock-on effects has been the ability to meet other people as, as a single person and the ability to progress a relationship for people that have just entered into a relationship. So I think that a really interesting discussion area would be uh, how people have sort of responded to dating during COVID, to meeting people during COVID, and if it's, you know, sort of affected relationships and how we sort of each evolved in different ways to, you know, whether whether we just start thinking more of ourselves or of others. So as a, as, as a seasoned 
a seasoned singleton, people may say. It was it was it was really it was super interesting because obviously the first couple of months just weren't even entertaining. It was it was pretty much about survival and sort of getting to grips with the new normal. And then as things opened up into the sum, in the summer, that's when you thought actually, I probably don't want to do an entire year just without having any kind of outside contact with another person. So we had to adapt to how can we do outdoor dates and how can we manage that whole situation. And then just as we're getting back into it, second lockdown. And then third lockdown hit quickly after that. So I'm going to open this up to, I think, I think we should start with Alana. Yeah. As someone who was in a relationship for, for, for the duration, I, I'm just interested to get your sort of take on it, how it affected your relationship and just what, if, if you've got any questions, you know, that you want to ask, I will do my best to answer them as a singleton and we can open it up. Yeah, it's funny that the person who is like in a relationship is the one who proposed this question to the group. But I'm I'm more interested to know, you know, there's some new relationships in here. There's the self-professed seasoned singletons. And I hear my friends complaining a lot about their various situations of trying to date and find people in lockdown. So um yeah, I'm here more to more to question, I suppose. Yeah, so I think for me the thing that was really interesting is that kind of before lockdown last year I wasn't even I was I was single but I wasn't looking to have a relationship of any kind like outside of the ones I had I was really throwing myself into work I was working four or five different jobs just busy because my thing was I just needed to be I'm an introvert but I like to be around people but kind of off in the corner I'm the kind of person that sits at a coffee shop and watches the world go by with specific regards to dating, it's like, I think because I, 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 I had COVID, I think because of that, I've always tr- treated the virus seriously. So even like yesterday when I was at the park, I'm the only one there wearing a mask. And then when it comes to, to dating, as I say, like, I'm not looking for anything. If something happens through the weirdness of COVID, then sure. But I don't know in what avenue that can happen. What about for you, Shabazz? Since I feel really awkward talking in front of my sister about this, let's uh, put it back on my sister. <laughs> What's dating been like? <laughs> dating in COVID. So dating in COVID. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, COVID, uh, unfortunately, fortunately, uh, claimed my relationship last year. So the whole dating thing has been pretty difficult anyway because I became single as my area went into, I think, tier two, tier three. Um, so, and I'd obviously just become single. I've moved to a new area, started a new job, moved to a new house. We're essentially in a lockdown situation. I can't meet people. It's been really difficult. So yeah, I have been relying heavily on the dating apps, but the messages are either <laughs> incredibly inappropriate, um, or downright rude, um, or drier than the Sahara desert. So it's been a really, it's, I've just, it's been really tough. It's been really tough. Um, I think that people have forgotten completely what dating et- etiquette is or texting etiquette is. I think that people have potentially been sort of locked up as it were so long that they have forgotten just normal pleasantries of how to speak to someone. And I am not going to go into details of this example, but what I will say is that I, the quickest I have received an unsolicited uh, dick pic is nine minutes. Um <gasps> nine minutes from the start of our conversation to the first inappropriate picture 
And um, as I've said to my brother, I've had meals that have taken longer to cook. I don't understand why that is acceptable to go, hey, I've just started speaking to you. Like, I really like your pictures. You seem really cool. But also, here is my penis. Uh, It's really unattractive, super up close, because I know that females love that. Um, What do you think? I just like, I I just need to say this to all men. If there's a camera here, I'll be looking at the camera uh, to all men. Penises are the worst looking things in the universe. They're horrible. So they, they only work in context to a person. That's the yes. only way it works as a thing. Okay? Stop it. Stop it. I do also feel, though, that I don't know if any other women in this conversation have noticed this, but since COVID and us being in lockdown, I get catcalled a lot more than I ever have. Yeah. And it's not because yeah. I'm looking hotter because it's I'm going in the opposite direction. Hey, it's some. <laughs> oh, thanks, babe. It's something about thirst. I People think. are thirsty out on these streets. Thank That's you. I thought it was just me, and I was like, my eyebrows are not saying a like, bit of sunlight and people go outside and everyone's thirsty. Yeah, and I feel like men, not all men, are like, <laughs> there's a woman. You know, and they have to shout something, but it's it's so much. My favourite is the um, obviously super attractive, the licking of the lips as I walk by <sighs> and the up and down glance. Yo, babes. We're rubbing his hands together as well. <laughs> but going back to the International Women's Day theme, I just want to say I'm not interested and keep moving. Not... Oh, I'm really sorry, I've got a boyfriend. Yeah, but we can be friends though. No, we can't. Um, I was having a conversation with a couple of my girlfriends very recently about that exact thing. And she was uh, talking to me about something, it was something completely unrelated. And she said, oh, you know, I had to turn around. This guy was showing interest. I, you know, I said I had a boyfriend, blah, blah, blah. And then she completely cut herself off. And she said, how ridiculous is it that we are in 2021 and I can't just turn around to a man who has given me um, attention that I do not want and tell him to leave me alone. I have to justify it by going, I have a boyfriend or I have a husband or my brother is coming to get me or my dad is nearby or whatever, whatever. It's like what we can't protect ourselves because we are women or we can't be taken seriously as someone who can protect themselves because we are women. We have to go, here is my male counterpart that can come in, like, you know, beat you up or whatever. I was just going to say the last time that I actually just told a guy flat out that I'm not interested, I was on the train and he came over and started chatting and, you know, I just said, I'm really sorry, but I'm not interested in you. He just started like racially abusing me. That I do you're, not understand. You're black, but you're talking like you're white. You think that you're better than us. And and it took a, a black guy who was sitting further down the carriage to get up and come and sit next to me and just sit in silence for this guy to leave me alone. And that is why girls say, yeah, sorry, I've got a boyfriend because you just don't know what's going to happen otherwise. And that yeah, is yeah. really scary. And it comes back to that vulnerability thing because I've had things happen like that to me where, you know, somebody's trying to make a pass and I've said no, but I've been surrounded by other people, so it's not a problem. But then the one time, and this actually happened over Christmas, where I got a flat tire in the middle of the desert and I had to pull over to this like rinky dink like car mechanics. Anyway, a whole transaction goes down and I I knew I had to pay in the office and I knew that I just had a feeling as soon as I was going to leave that this guy was going to touch me inappropriately, which is exactly what happened. 
normally I would kick off and I did for a second, but I was like, I'm here. It's getting dark. I'm by myself. There's only this guy and his coworkers around. And so I just had to leave. And like, that's the type of shit that you deal with every, not every day, but those are the situations that make you afraid to speak up. I feel like as a woman, because I'm not one to normally not speak up, but in a situation where I'm like, this could actually turn very bad for me. I just have to get the fuck out of here. And you carry that with you and women carry it. You know, I was, I think 11 or 12 when I was first like inappropriately approached by a man. And you know, that's a whole lot of experiences that you then carry around with you, you know, and every woman has these stories and you get smaller and smaller and you accommodate this behavior more and more because it's so scary to be vulnerable in those positions. Yeah. What I would say, though, and um, something that really helped change my mindset on this or gave me more confidence was from a surprising source. I listened to a lot of um, like my favorite murder or things about like um, like serial killers and just very morbid shit. But their whole thing on that podcast is that um, they always say, like, fuck politeness. Because it's that being polite, trying to accommodate men who creep you out and like trying to be kind of like demure that gets you hacked up in the back of a trunk. So so if you're in a safe place, I think to do so where there are people around or you do, I mean, first of all, just run if you're not in a safe place like I did. But if there are other people around, like yell at that guy and say, you're a fucking creep. Like you are creeping me out. Leave me alone. You know, make him shrink, make him shrink in public. I think the only thing i have to if it's add, safe if it's safe to sorry yeah. The, yeah the only thing i have to add to this is this is i don't know about you guys i've felt so happy on twitter recently with um the last president not being there and just dominating the oxygen of, of twitter but this is the danger when you kind of say locker room talk where you minimize it when you've got leaders in this government that have done some funky stuff when it comes to to women and you dismiss it as boys will be boys it's um you know the penalty for rejecting a man can be death and yeah the problem is is that women very clearly know that and so this is my thing it's like you know someone like donald trump isn't avuncular and jolly and so when they've done serious things it needs to be called as such just wanted to sort of talk through some of my a couple of my experiences just to give people a bit of a pitch of the scale of well the spectrum of dating so i remember like last year i went on a couple of like the first two i went on was when we were allowed to meet people outside but they were like socially distanced and you were just meeting in parks i think it might have been like april or may when it's quite fine weather so we're on the bikes it's absolutely fine and it was, it, it just, they felt quite alien because, you know, when you're, when you're on a date, it's, it's, you're not going in thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm going to lips this person. That's going to be, it's going to be, you're not always expecting that. But the fact that knowing that you're not going to do that and, and consciously staying two meters apart and bringing your own, each bringing your own picnic blanket so you can sit like a bit, a, a bit apart and then, you know, having your drinks and then the date coming to an end because there's no toilets open because they're all shut by the council. <laughs> it's just, it was just all so weird. And it, it sort of, it does, it covers the sort of conversation you have and how the date goes. And I got like the first one that went on really, you know, got on really well with the person, but it just felt a bit strange. 
and I, I got I, I we went on another day and it didn't quite work out but I'm you know, I'm still we still talk to each other from time to time we we get on well as friends and that's that is how it is but I, I then spoke to a few of the people a couple of the girls who who told me about experiences that they'd had and you know as the year went on they'd had similar types of dates and some of them it's well a couple of them the guy was like he'd pick a location oh the parks luckily the parks next to my house so we can use this whole at my house and then they go on the date and have a few drink and then they end up back at the guy's house and in both cases nothing bad happened but they were in a situation where one of them was in a situation where she was just like i didn't she wasn't massively comfortable and she ended up leaving the situation because of that but it was this 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 I guess a desire to to be with someone else and the fact that you're on a date and the circumstances meant they ended up putting themselves in situations which they wouldn't normally be in and as a man you never ever think about that you don't have to think about that because it's that's just how it is whereas that unfortunately has been it's it's added a layer of risk to the experience that a woman goes through anyway in just meeting someone new yeah i, I will pass on to uh yana and dom finally but um yeah it's i mean there, there was an article in the guardian and i know that alana previously put another article up as well she was covering a similar ground about how the government's approach to lockdown has been a very sort of old-fastened juvenile thing where we only cater for people in like in a in a, a loving Christian relationship with 2.4 children and it leaves a lot of people sort of swinging like just sort of yeah just 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 flapping in in the wind on their own so I think I do worry that a lot of people have ended up in situations yeah where where they wouldn't normally put themselves in and I just hope that you know out of the back of this when when the analysis is done and people look at the numbers we've not seen um, any adverse effects because of that I guess I'm, I'm interested, I will finally pass on now to sort of talk to Jana and Dom about how you two sort of managed the transition from, you know, from not knowing each other to dating to through to through to, to now in an adult fashion, please. It's a family show. Dominic. First of all, most, <laughs> anything that's been said on previous podcasts. I've heard. Ignore and it. Yeah. <laughs> ignore it. Ignore it. It never happened. <laughs> We had been on each other's radar for quite a while. Um, <laughs> yes, I had been stalking Dom. Um, and we got together in the middle of lockdown. So we didn't kind of start from scratch, really. We we knew of each other and that definitely helped. I don't know. It's actually saved us quite a lot of money because we've gone straight to like, well, no, obviously, like we did have dates and stuff, but we've gone, you know, quite quickly to the like cozy days yeah. <laughs> rather than we've going on dates. So my bank account is very happy because yeah. it's International Women's Day and everything should be equal. It always is, which is which is excellent. Uh, but no, it's it's been great. It was, I think, the first thing we went on our first date, and it was a walk, like you were saying, Dan, and with no alcohol as well. And I can't speak to anyone else, but I've never been on a first date without alcohol before. So that was one. Having to figure out actually how to have a conversation without Dutch courage was interesting. Which was but funny because he couldn't look me in the eye. I couldn't. <laughs> what what is wrong with people, man? <laughs> <laughs> right listen when you lot meet her in person you'll understand boring not creative and shifty 
Yeah, shifty. Shifty. We'll go with shifty. We'll go with shifty, right? I'll rate that Alana. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but once once we got past that little hiccup, no, it was it was good. It was good because, like Jan says, um, there were certain times because it was back when we were in that little gap between lockdowns, so we could actually do certain things. But then it was just like, yo, should we just get a takeaway? Like that kind of thing. So we didn't have to spend a whole bag of money every single weekend and whatnot. And I think the linear nature of relationships is more difficult when you meet within a COVID um, and then you have to manoeuvre lockdowns as well because we were in a position where we were seeing so much of each other towards the back end of last year and then third lockdown hits and we don't live together. So it's like, right, okay, now we're back to park dates. So it's kind of like you've just got to be accepting of the fact that things are going to change in a relationship and you're going to have no power over it um, and just constantly try and maneuver with that i think yeah it is it is possible it's just you've got to be ready to to change things up every so often and i think it also is going back to the kind of being having the same expectations of covid everybody's covid what am i trying to say you know what i mean everybody's beliefs around how we should deal with covid that's what i'm trying to say just having respect and kind of patience around that you know like don works at home but i my resting job when I'm not acting, which obviously isn't really happening right now. I work in a college with um, young people with special needs. And so I'm around a lot of people every single day. And so I have to be really mindful of that. And I've had to rely on Dom to kind of, to understand that as well. Like I put myself in kind of higher risk for my job. So the way that I then have to move through the world is definitely affected by that. I I will say this as well. Like I feel like, this is just me, but I feel like I've learned a lot more about myself and I've, I think I've become, in a weird way, I think I have become better at my role in relationships and what, what is knowing what's expected of me and knowing how to manage what, you know, what I should be giving to other people during this time, just because I've, it's been a lot of time of reflection and if you, you know, it, it's been... I've just been trying to be a bit more considerate and think about that. So I think, yeah, it's it's for me that's been an unexpected side effect of of this of this crazy time. Long awaited, we have our second ever Black in a Box draft. So women who be winning International Women's Day usually would have the guest drawing the lots, but I mean we're all going to take part here. So I think we'll just go. No, we'll, we'll go. We'll go reverse order. Women first. So we'll start with Yah, Shabazz, Alana, and then Dom, Dan, and then Angelo. <laughs> Every time. Every time. Cool. That's cool. So my first woman, I've just read the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. So my first woman is going to be Henrietta Lacks. Um, she, in a nutshell, was an African American woman who unfortunately um, had cervical cancer. Her cells were used for science and are now basically the basis of most of the cancer treatment, a lot of jabs. Um, The coronavirus jab would have had its trials done on Henrietta Lacks' cells and essentially her family nor her were told that this was gonna happen, Um, but her cells are now immortal. And it's a very good book. I recommend it to everyone. I can't do it justice. Henrietta Lacks. Alana. All right. So my first pick, 
is has to be Stacey Abrams. Uh, she is just the epitome of getting shit done. For anyone who doesn't know who she is, she is a grassroots political organizer in the state of Georgia. She effectively <laughs> flipped Georgia almost by herself um, so that we would have a democratic Georgia, which gave us a democratic Senate and pretty much gave us Biden and Harris. So not to downplay what all the other hardworking people did, but she really is um, a machine, that woman. Living so legend. Were you make were you making a case for her there or against her? No, I'm making <laughs> what? I, I, I just I'm not sure. I'm not sure because Okay, let me put it this way. She almost single handedly went door to door and registered hundreds of thousands of black people in America to vote. Uh, and that's an amazing feat. So that's the most that. impressive I, thing. Yeah. I rate that. Is that is that is that fourteen hundred dollars gonna land directly in your account? You've got an account, haven't you, in the US? Uh next question. <laughs> <laughs> Shabazz. A black woman that I um, definitely admire uh, is Kemi Johnson. Um, she is um, an incredible woman and the main reason that I love her is she just doesn't care and she will say whatever needs to be it's not what she wants to say it's stuff that needs to be said she doesn't care about people's reaction she's um a huge birth activist and some of the stuff that she says about women's care and the way that she tries to um engage with her followers and um, empower women is just great but also the comedic value of her tweets are just it's a1 you can't get any higher so i think yeah she would be my she would be my first pick I would love to have dinner with her. <laughs> you heard it here first. Heard it here first. I like it. It's a solid choice. So, next, on to you, Dom. I've gone with Nanny. Nanny of the Maroons. Um, huh. As a proud Jamaican. She was a leader of the Jamaican Maroons. She basically fought a guerrilla war against the British. And there's some pretty amazing stories about how she helped black people basically escaped from slave masters um, and from the British army out in Jamaica. Um, she's on the $500 note back her yard. She's, um, yeah, she's got a pretty interesting story. So I'm going to go with Nanny for my first and boring pick and the rest will get a bit more exciting from here. $500, hold tight inflation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, big up Nanny, big up Nanny. For me, I'm going to go mainstream because I mean, everyone's out here digging into the books. Topical, I'm going to go Naomi Osaka. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I mean, Angela's going to have to find another choice here, but she she won another major. She has spent the last year out here. She fights for what she believes in. She is a real one. And she's leading this next generation of tennis players to not take copious amounts of HGH. But anyway... <laughs> There you go, Naomi Osaka. I wasn't even going to go for it, so it's fine. Um, my, I get two, right? 
You, you, yeah. should we do two? Yeah, yeah. obviously. Yeah, you give him two. Uh, so, uh, my first pick is the Marxist, feminist, revolutionary. Uh, without her, Don wouldn't have caught his first wine at like four or five years old. I'm going with Claudia Jones, the uh, founder of the Notting Hill Carnival. Um, packed more into her <laughs> 27 years than most people would could pack into two or three uh, lifetimes. I just don't kind of think that needs any explanation. And I can't believe I get to pick a goat in another industry. Uh, you picked Osaka, she's winning now. I'm going to pick the woman that trailblazed and made greatness seem normal. I'm going with my one of my favourite people that I've never met, Serena Williams. Uh, you, you, you don't just turn up and win the Australian Open whilst you're pregnant. That's not something that you're supposed to do. You don't win so many Grand Slams that they kind of keep talking about your power. And then when it comes out that actually you're not in the top 50 for power, they're like, oh, maybe it's just because she's outthinking people and got grit and all this stuff. Uh, hold tight, uh, Miss Williams. Serena Williams is my second pick. Yeah, for my second pick, I'm going to go for a, a woman who's hit the headlines, a woman who is winning, a woman who... Is, is, is finally getting the headlines she deserves. Um, I'm going to go for Angela Rayner and her new headphones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. We are not going for Angela Rayner, but you enjoy those AirPods on my pocket, Angela. Hopefully you can hear this loud and clear, you thief. Um, no. But seriously, I'm going to go for Viola Davis. Um, yeah. I saw a picture at the Globes last night looking regal. And we spoke about before on the pod. She's finally getting her flowers. People are finally recognising the greatness. Hold tight, Viola. Yeah, I'm going to go with Alex Scott because she's on the verge of oh, doing yeah. what is seemingly impossible. Making men listen to women. Also happens that she's a black woman about football. And not only is she on people's televisions talking about football, she's the best fucking one at the job as well. She's the most researched. She's the most articulate. She is a phenomenal broadcaster and she just keeps getting better and better. She also just happened to play for Arsenal as well, which is another little reason why I love her so much. But Alex Scott, phenomenal player and phenomenal broadcaster. So she's my second pick. Nice. Love that. Uh, so my second pick, it's going to be a duo because um, I said so. But they work together, Morgan Dixon and Vanessa Garrison. They are the founders of Girl Trek, which I've definitely like praised on this podcast before. Um, Girl Trek is a nonprofit organization, and they had this goal to get a million Black women walking um, as a radical act of self-care in order to reclaim their health against pretty shocking statistics about oh, just the health uh, crises that face Black women in America and I'm sure in the UK as well. And they finally reached that goal of having a million Black women signing up for Girl Trek last year in 2020. Um, and they just keep doing amazing, amazing work. They actually have these uh, month-long Black history boot camps where every day they tell you about a significant figure in black history very often um like of a, a foremother of a civil rights movement um etc so one just started today so check them out girl check i like it um 
my second pick is going back to me saying before about, about how representation matters and stuff. It's not midwifery related. Um, when I was younger, I used to do gymnastics and I was one of the very few, I think I was the only black girl. Um, and I was taller than the other um, girls that were doing it. My body shape was different. I was called manly at one point, which I thought was just, now I think it's barbaric. I was nine years old, leave me alone. Um, so I will shout out Simone Biles because she made my inner nine and 10 year old gymnast just scream for joy. Anytime I see anything about her, anytime I hear that she's succeeding, anytime I see her perform, I just feel so nostalgic for that time and wish that I had had role models like her when I was, I was doing that. So yeah, that's, that's my second pick. It's a great pick. It's a great pick. Yeah, pick two. Okay, t- do they have to be alive? Have I missed something here? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> okay, the second I'm going to go homegrown. I'm obsessed with her. Kelechi Okafor. I'm, if you don't know her, get to know because I, I think I'm becoming increasingly aware of the sacrifices that women are having to make to speak their truth. And she is somebody who constantly speaks the truth and drags people when they rightfully deserve it. And that doesn't come without a sacrifice. You know, she's a professional actor and a writer as well. And those things, speaking out does have an impact on your career. I'm always really, really careful of what I say on social media and stuff. And she just says it with her chest and she teaches me about bravery. And, oh, man, I just love her. If I ever met her, I think I'd just collapse. (laughs) Second, I'm going to say Madam CJ Walker. She was the first black American, actually, no, I think just first black female millionaire. Um, She made her money... Um, designing and selling hair products and I think hair is something between black women and black men that is so politicised and you know for her to come her parents were um, enslaved and then became sharecroppers and then she became a millionaire and I just think that is amazing so if you google her you'll see that cool picture of her in her car with her girls and it's just it's just the best feeling yeah Hold tight, Madam CJ Walker, patterning everyone on the pod except for Dom for, <laughs> since forever. Or oh, oh, Nate, but Nate's not here. Okay, great. Shabazz, final pick? Um, Final pick's probably not one that people would choose. I don't know. Um, I think I would like to shout out Meghan Markle for... Yes! the way that she has handled how this country received her or more accurately did not receive her Um, the grace and decorum that she has conducted herself with um, in admits just tabloid after tabloid after whatever person after person um, you know public figure after public figure just trying to damn her at every possible moment and the fact that she has just carried this grace about her is just incredible. Um, I 
found it very interesting that Dominic Cummings was found to have acted unlawfully and yet the headlines were all about Harry and Meghan and the disrespect that they had for leaving a royal family that hasn't really protected them and left a country that has done nothing but just harangue his wife. Um, I think it's ridiculous. Um, so yeah, absolute shout out to Megan. <laughs> to Megan, she's my best friend. Um, <laughs> because I just, I I think that we would all like to think that we would handle those situations exactly the way that she has handled them. But I think that I'm talking for myself personally that I would not have the strength to handle them the way that she's handled them. I definitely don't think I would have reacted anywhere near as politely at um, any point. So yeah. Can confirm. Can confirm. (laughs) Yeah, shout out to her mom too, because it cannot have been easy to see that stuff. Um, Her little Jamaican mama. Um, Right, so for my third pick, uh, probably a little known woman, but a young woman uh, from Compton, California named Winter Floyd. Uh, and she, I don't know if you guys have ever seen like the Compton Cowboys, um, mm-hmm. but they are legit, legitimately like part of the black horse riding community in Compton. Um, I think when people think of like the wild, wild west and sort of like those old westerns, which I'm a huge fan of, they only think of white men. And it's just another part of black history that's really overlooked is like the amazing um, black cowboys and cowboy cowgirls. Um, that have existed throughout history. And Winter, uh, she's a barrel rider, um, which is basically just a type of horse riding in um, rodeo. And she's trying to change, you know, stereotypes about cowboys and horse riding and cowgirls. And she's doing it in the middle of Compton. And I just, I just love that. And she's probably like still a teenager and I look up to her. (laughs) I like that. That's cool my final pick so i was stuck between two and i was going with a musician because obviously um and i was going to say erica badu but i'm now going to say solange because it follows on from what you've just said there because i think solange not only is she one of the most creative people in the industry i think it's difficult to step from beneath the shadow that being related to not only being the little sister of one of the greatest musicians of all time it's difficult and the way that she's carved a lane for herself makes some incredible stuff and it's just loud and proud and in your face with blackness and what blackness means to her and what blackness means to a lot of other people as well and that with the um, cowboys and girls is something that she showed in the visual art for her most recent album as well alana um so i think her and thumping up jay-z man as well always give some respect for that so yeah it's it's, uh, Solange for me Solange Knowles (laughs) I like that. Solange always got time for her. By far the most talented, uh, best artist in her family. So cool. You know where I am. Hi. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so (laughs) I guess uh, for my final pick, I'm going a bit left field. I I need to note Nate's talked many times about STEM, and I'd like to pick uh, Maggie Adderin Pocock. Uh, She presented The Sky at Night. Patrick Moore, she's a scientist and she's trying to get young black girls into STEM and she's she's been out here for 30 years subverting the, this idea that uh, black kids aren't into STEM, that black girls aren't into STEM, that science in the UK isn't for young black girls. Um, yeah, so, you know, British-born Nigerian woman, she was dyslexic 
but wasn't diagnosed and she overcame all that and she's running the team so hold tight Maggie add her in Pocock and uh, to finish off it's t- like the, I, I had so many because I you know I did that normal thing of like you're going to snipe all my picks I thought we were going five rounds um, but I've ne- I've boiled it down to two so my honourable mention and it is honourable because I think she is genuinely one of the funniest people I've ever had the pleasure of uh, coming across meeting I've met her once it was memorable for me she would definitely not remember it is Jeannie Ashery um, you know not many people British people uh, able to go over to America and have a hit uh, TV show hit me up if you need a writer by the way yeah uh, but no she's hilarious that's my honourable mention um, but I decided that for my final pick, I'm going to go with Octavia Butler. Um, for my money, the best science fiction writer that's ever lived. Um, I wrote uh, my dissertation on um, the Pattern Master series because I think it's just the greatest science fiction I've ever seen. Uh, it kind of formed the bedrock of my dissertation, which... I looked at how um, literature can lead to liberation. Um, And the reason people who are listening to this haven't heard of her and don't have her on the same sort of level as other great science fiction writers is so obvious, I'm not even going to say it. But if you check her work out, you will see that this was the genius that you needed all along. And I cannot believe Hollywood has not optioned every single one of the Pattern Master series because it would be the greatest thing ever. Fantastic. And that ends the second draft, Women Who Be Winning. Uh, Check out all those names of people you've not heard. What a podcast. What a podcast. Um, I want to say thanks to you all. Thanks to our guests. Thanks to Jan. You have been uh, enlightening and really appreciated having you on and would love to have you on again in any time you want thank you for having me yeah hopefully yeah we're gonna be back in studio we're gonna be back pond road in a couple of months so yeah so definitely (laughs) um sit there in person and yeah be a lot better and also i've noticed the weird thing is angelo has been quite a bit you know he he was on smoke but i feel like he was showing off a bit because you're on the call shabazz but (laughs) i can i think i speak for everyone else in saying it's been a pleasure having you on so thanks so much uh really loved having you on you know, your, your third appearance, we'll, we'll, we'll sort something out for you. The, uh, what's the prize for the hat-trick performance? Um, some Bizzles well, Bakes goodies. To, I I hand you, I sign over the domain for the bakes <laughs> that I just bought whilst you're on the call. <laughs> <laughs> Shebakes PLC, you can become a director of that. Thank you, Alana. Thank you, and thank you. Yeah, thank you to our guests. Um, it's great not to be the only one representing all women of all time everywhere for once. <laughs> um, yeah, and happy International Women's Day, all. Angela, Dom? Yeah, cheers. It's been, it's been great. It's always great. It's always fun. Have a great march, everyone. Happy Women's Day. Cheers. <laughs> See you later, guys. It's all love, John Boyega. It's all love, John Boyega. It's all love.